Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to another episode of the Bandwagon Podcast. And over the last sort of few weeks, I've been in a very reminiscent mood. I think it's just reflective in terms of the time of the year and, um, I don't know, just general age, really. Um, But one of those main characters um, around that time when I was growing up um, has kindly joined me after many attempts that I've tried to uh, steer him to come on and, and... and today he's going to share like many aspects of of his private life, um, you know, for for everybody. And and I really appreciate him taking that time out. So, without further ado, welcome Tali Digital. How's it going, Ricky? Tali, I just want to stop you there for a second, right? I have nobody has ever chosen a background before, but the the background that you've chosen there is is tremendous. I use this at work, so uh, you know. Why not? <laughs> what's that like? What's that in terms of like? Um, is it giving you a feel of the presidential kind of quality? It is. Um, I've heard that they've got the, the president has a button on his desk. Hand. So every president, it's like one one person he can get anything, but like one item. I think Donald Trump had like Diet Coke, like chilled, ready, press that button. And I actually quite like Diet Coke, so like. I think Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky didn't he when he pressed it. He, well, he probably didn't either, but to go to the Libertis, you're there. <laughs> 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 oh, that's a, well, that's a great start anyway. So, I, firstly, how are you? I'm good. I am. I'm blessed, man. Yeah, We'll we'll build up to it, so we'll kind of ease uh, ease ourselves into it. But like one of the one of the things that I always kind of start off with um, when I try and when I'm speaking to people on the podcast is kind of like the big what what kind of a a young person were they like? So what was a young Tali like as a kid growing up? Um, I was a 
and where? Growing up in the community, I wasn't a, I wasn't a popular kid at school. Um, you know, uh, I wasn't as um, you know confident as I am now. Um, quite the opposite, really. Very shy, very timid. Not part of the popular kind of uh, kind of crew. But I think the one thing that really connected me with the popular crew was the love for music and Pangra music. And growing up in West Bromwich, you know, which is you know the core of the Black Country and around the corner from Handsworth and, you know, surrounded by kind of uh, great Bhangra pioneers, you know, and that kind of connected me with a lot of people locally. Um, and, you know, with, with that in mind, you know, with my interest in DJing and making beats and stuff, you know, that quiet timid Tali became slightly popular. So we, we, we've known each other roughly about 25 years, all in all, probably a little bit longer because when we... Yeah. We used to actually uh, <laughs> see each other on the bus. So, I, yeah. Where, where, where did you go? Cadbury's, or was it? No, which college did you go? No, no. no I used to work in um, in Quinton. That's it. So we used to catch. I see on the eleven when I used to get off yeah. to go to school. Yeah. And then you were so, killing it then. Yeah, I, I used to jump off at Bearwood, the bus from West Brom, and then uh, I'd cross the street. And as I'm about to jump onto my next one. That's when I kind of met you and and and, and the others. <laughs> yeah, the others. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and it was always we always used to end up like talking about Pangra music, and I I didn't even know how deep you were into kind of music at that stage because it was just more conversation. And you're always very well dressed, really slush. I always remember you with a big umbrella every time you used to walk with that umbrella. And I think, yeah. oh, this geezer, this geezer's on it. So I like. How quickly did you go from there back and getting into DJing? Because I, I remember like your first kind of when you, I knew when you came on screen, but like the the hard graft that you were doing before then was for a good number of years as well. Yeah, so you see, Bhangra and music itself has always kind of you know occupied a certain part of my life uh, space. Um, I've always had a day job. I've always worked in an industry, uh, which is where I used to go to in Quinton. And I used to work for Birmingham City Council at that time. Um, so for me, you, but not the Shanghai City, you know, and uh, that's how, like, you know, got to speak to you guys and the others, and we'd have those long conversations. And so I was always into DJing. And I think for me, the first kind of break was I, one of my neighbors, uh, he's passed away now, Michael Sandu, rest in peace, Central Voice, he used to be called. Uh, as, as a young kid, Mildon, I'd done the city, I helped him out with his speakers. and his very heavy uh, TV screens and whatnot. And from there, you know, I bought my own gear and started kind of, you know, making my own mixes and, and kind of, you know, experimenting with instrumentals and acapellas. Um, and then I got a bit of an interest in radio. So I take West Brom, there used to be like a like an RSL 30-day uh, licensed radio station. I don't know if they still do them, but they used to pop up here and there. And on one of those, kind of, it, was, it was like a, like an Afro-Caribbean station and they let me do like a Bangra slot. Yeah. So for, th for 30 days, man, I had my own own radio show. I didn't know what I was doing. And I was just spinning. And uh, I got a bit brave and I, and I started ringing people, you know, uh, for some interviews. And out of all the people that um, kind of entertained uh, my random calls were Simon and Diamond um, and uh, Sajid Badi for Monarchy. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. 
I ran loads of people. Um, a lot of people put the phone down on me. You know, you, you see, well, I was just going to say that because you, you <laughs> kind of remember those ones, don't you, more than yeah. any... Uh, you always have a special place for people who actually took the chance on you and stuff like that. Of course, but, You know, the ones that where you kind of expect, oh, hang on, I'm, mate, I'm doing you a favour. And then yeah. all of a sudden it's like, they, they kind of they, there's that apprehension there or it's just the, the ghosting. The ghosting pisses me off. Yeah. Well, I get it, you know. Why do you, days... why do you, I got told, it is, is a question. Like, why do you think, why do you think that is so, I'm not saying it's common, but, it happens when you get when people get to a certain level of perceived fame, that the the the, the blanking and the, this kind of new persona, like, oh, I can't, I don't hang around with this guy. He's a beg, or yeah. this guy is like this. I think what it is is when 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 people kind of get kind of artificial kind of attention, you know, sometimes the ego does kick in. I've probably had many moments like that. I think, you know, when people start believing their own hype, you know, these kind of things can happen. You know, uh, have I kind of blanked and ghosted people? Probably, yeah. You know, I've, I've had my ups and downs personality-wise throughout the years. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I do get where you're coming from. You know, once you get a chance, you know, no matter what. But going back to that RSL, you know, it was a 30-day license where the frequency was contained really to Sandwell. So all the people who didn't entertain me, 99% of them, they're probably thinking, you know, why am I going to go and go on this random guy's TV show on High Street, West Bromwich? Mm. And I, when, like, he's probably got no, you know, no, no target audience. Mm. Um, but, you know, Simon Diamond uh, and, and Serge, it was big for me. That was, you know, uh, and I was a huge fan of both of those entities. Grew up listening to Anarchy and I'd say Simon Diamond, you know, one of the, one of the main kind of producers that inspired my uh, inspired me and my sound. <clears throat> so it's great just talking to them. And um, and Simon uh, from Sound actually became a real good friend of mine, a bit of a mentor over the years as well. Um, but Serge was the guy who kind of uh, who came on to the show and, and uh, we, we clicked and I go, Baji, I want to play this mix up on Umbi. So I played him a little remix I did of Umbi, which was um, the original Umbi. Um, from, no, it was the Umbi from Amr. That Omar did, and, and I kind of mixed some beats on top of it. And he, he, liked, he liked it. He goes, We should go to the studio. I'm working on my new album. I think he was working on Surreal then. And he's like, Come in. And, uh, you know. Well, what uh, year was this? Just just for referencing for people. 1999, 98, 99, and around that time. And um, so, you know, I went down to Peak West Studio, you know, scared to shit, you know, like, bloody hell, what am I doing? I don't know. And uh, Pete Ware had a studio in Kidderminster in the back of his house. Really lovely guy. And of course, I knew I, I, I knew who Pete Ware was. So that we knew we've come from a generation where yeah. you know, we grew up on reading inlay cards. And I, <laughs> I knew who Pete Ware was. And I knew what I knew where Famous Studios was. And starstruck by working with Pete. Um, and then we put Umbi down. Um, it didn't come out for a couple of years. It didn't come out till after um, Dub Conspiracy. But yeah, you know, Sir John Key, oh, and everything. He's the one who gave me my first chance, and he's like, "Tali, just do it." Yeah, he said, "Just do it." And uh, funny thing is, is um, DJ Shake from Kiss Records rang me as well. He's like, "Who gave you authority to go to studio?" My dog, yeah. And the little kid man is like, "You booked into studio to do this. You know, you should have asked me first. I'm like, "Buddy, I don't, I don't know your number. So I just sent me." So like, 
that was a, a an interesting um what, why of, was that because like of the copyright issues or who was, it was a copyright. More, about, more about budgets like obviously Dida Sheikh didn't know who I am he probably doesn't um but it was a case of you know some random kids going into studio on my time yeah you know to work on something which I haven't sanctioned so you know so to speak so you know for me that was my first kind of experience of of kind of a, a bit of a negative energy uh, but in hindsight, I get it. You know, it's his money. It's his. It's his dollar. Hana. He's probably thinking, I want what to get up. Mood, mood. Talk it all. Get out the studio. No, but it's also, but it's interesting you, you kind of <coughs> say that because when you, you know, when you kind of have these conversations, it's always kind of that your first experiences are your is your base, isn't it, or what it's going from? Yeah. If that you said it, you just touched on the negative, nervous energy, whatever it was. If you've yeah. already got that kind of setting as you're going into a space of creativity, it could contaminate, it could stress you out, it could distract you. It can. Um, and I've got to say that that wasn't just the first and only time. I mean, there's been many occasions uh, where I've been kind of engulfed in, in kind of negative energy. But, Ricky, the thing is, is because for me, it's always been a hobby, it's been a shock. I've never really been 100% emotionally invested in it. So for me, it was never like, I've got to do this to pay the bills, I've got to do this to put you know, food on my kid's table, Hannah. So for me, because it, it was a hobby, um, when it hurt, it didn't hurt as much as it, it, it may be I've done if I was kind of, you know, doing it professionally. Mm. And then when did you kind of expand it on the road to kind of dub conspiracy? How did that happen? So um, after I did that, um, you know, I got a bit of kind of encouragement. I thought, you know, I'm going to do this. I really enjoyed that. So Pete gave me some kind of some sounds and some samples, and I started kind of uh, you know you know making beats. And I had a had a real small Yamaha uh, sampler called the SU10 that just you know make you know make little samples on that and play them over. Various... Did you, was it all self-taught? Like how you like? At that point, it was. Yeah. At that point, and it's probably very wrong as well. Um, I put together some remixes of like kind of uh, various songs, whether they were Western or Punjabi, with like kind of instrumentals and stuff on there. Um, and I kind of gave them out to, uh, to, to to a lot of places. Um, one one um, there's one label in particular on Soho Road who um, who took it from me. And uh, when I went back in for you know to, to get the feedback, the girl who who used to work behind the counter she's like, yeah, you know, so and so hasn't heard it yet. But whenever we're feeling a bit down or a bit kind of you know um, a bit you know a bit bored, put your CD on just to have a laugh. I'm like, okay, that's nice to know. What as as a piss take? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got like, hang on, hang on. You've gone in there in good intentions to like, oh, here you go, blah blah. Yeah. And they and they and they come back with saying like, oh, when we want to have a laugh, we put on your your work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's cool though because that label went out and kind of made quite a name for itself by kind of doing the kind of things that they were laughing at that I did. And it was cool. So good, didn't it? Um, but yeah, so um, yeah, sent out demos and stuff. Um, couldn't really send out Sergi's song to anybody because he hadn't released at that point, and you know, it wasn't for mine to share even as a demo. I think Metro Music, Sonny Suri, I'd met him a couple of times, he was interested. Only men who are to know me, nothing. Um, and being a DJ and a local lad, I mean, I spent most of my spare time. Just uh, hanging around all the music shops on Soho Road, as you do, yeah, you know. Yeah. And on that note, props to Jason, uh, you know the shop, Jason Uncle, um, 
and Raj, you know, uh, kind of pioneers of music retailing in Birmingham uh, or, or the Midlands. He's going to spend a lot of time there. And then Bollywood Music opened at the top. I don't know if you remember that. Opposite yeah, 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 yeah. Because Jay, Jay, it was either Jason. If ever you were looking for something, it was always OSA or Jason was definitely yeah. going to have it. It was either Jason so, wasn't that guaranteed. OSA was the place to go for for old school stuff. So yeah, yeah, yeah. At one point, they were selling all of their vinyls for like four pound each. So I bought two of everything. Yeah. And I, Good thinking. Yeah. yeah. Um, so like uh, OSA was for the old school stuff. Jason's was if you needed the stuff from India. You know, like you know the the, the new stuff mm. and like, all the old stuff they had it there. Um, then there was Soho Music by S and D. Yeah, uh, but then when Bollywood Music opened, um, you know, I, I got really kind of um, familiar with the guys that worked there, uh, and became really good friends with a couple of guys called Lucky and Imran. Um, Imran um, uh, Ahmed, who's actually the son of Shabir Ahmed, movie box, he now runs Revere Records. Become really good friends with Imran and Lucky. Lucky is actually, uh, you know, Matty, the producer, his son. So all short along with this again, I became friends with them and I go, look, this is what I want to get into and this is what I'm doing. So they introduced me to uh, Lucky Dad, to Mac G. And uh, I went into Coventry Road, uh, you know, played them, you know, uh, what I'd done. So and, at that time then, because what one of the clear things that uh, what I kind of learned to do, is, especially when like, you know, is this kind of give the impression of what was being released at that time. So what was the kind of peer pressure? Because it's it's you can understand someone's journey, but I think some of it around the creativity of what was being released at that time and who who was the kind of not the competition, but the yeah, go on, yeah, the comp competition. I'd say this was around the time when um, Orchid came out, Jazzy B, Six Condition, that body had just done the way it is. You know, the early two thousands. Uh, this was. Just before RDB, you know, kind of blew up um, around the time of Dr. Zeus's debut album, and uh, around that kind of in that kind of that Roma MV kind of transition around that yeah. time, yeah. And, uh, the MV magazine, the Snoop Snoop magazine was uh, on paperback at that point. And, uh, no message boards yet. No, no, this is re this is around the start of like pre message boards. We'll get to that in a bit as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so um, went in to move off, you know, spoke to uh, to Mac Budgie and he's like, we do want to, you know, he goes like, you know, we've got the, you know, these are the labels that we've got in our conglomerate, which you want to sign to. And just before I could say movie box, he meant now I'm going to sign you to Columbia Records because movie box is full at the moment. But for me, it was the same in tomato, tomato, and I'm like, it's cool. So yeah, signed a five album deal with movie box. You know, mind just blown within seconds. And I'm thinking, Shit, I've been like running around trying to talk to people who have like kind of, you know, uh, been frequenting for years, you know, like that one, that one store on Soho Road or whether it was at Metro down London. And like these guys, you know, they've clearly got a plan and, you know, they want to um, take a risk on me. What does it, and, so what does it, sorry, um, I got, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I just want to <coughs> answer the questions. Like so what does a contract look like from, from that bit? It was like, did you have a time limit where you had to get those five, those five albums in? Because straight away, if someone gives you like five albums, right, you're, that, you're looking at nearly 50 songs just, just there and it roughly, and then um, you're putting them down. I can't remember what the uh, contract looked like. It's been a very long time, it's been 20 <laughs> 
but it was it was quite a legitimate legal document, you know. Um, and the, the way the structure of the contract was broken down was is that, you know, there's five albums, five budgets, um, and then you know there were certain terms that, you know, I'd have to release, I'd have to hand the album in at a particular time once the budget was allocated, and then the label would have a certain amount of time to release it before uh, they give it back to me. So like. Um, you know, they'd have like a, I don't know, like a 90 day, they'd have to release it within 90 days of me submitting my mask and stuff. So it's quite legit, but it wasn't like a two page. Yeah, yeah. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like a, like a at that two. time, Movie Box was pull, pushing out loads, of, like when <laughs> the albums were coming. I remember yeah. the artwork changed and it? they all, it, everything started out. Um... It, it was just an amazing um, kind of movement to kind of watch and be a part of. You know, their, um, their design work was in house, their yeah. distribution was in house. The videos were in-house. And <clears throat> what they really did was the amount of money and time they invested. I mean, it was, you know, it was a proper organization. It wasn't like one Banda, you know, doing his, um, you know, carrying the business out in, in the back of, you know, his shop or anything. These guys legit knew what they were doing and they had a business model. You know, so um, Tintin, the, the guy who, who did the covers, you know, he'd bang out 15, 20 designs like every other day and, He'd just like pick stuff and you know you'd go in and give him your ideas as well. And I, I signed around the time when the DJ Vix signed at the same time, roughly around uh, uh, the lick had already come out. So I think Srindara and EP was about to come out. Kami K, you know, these are uh, Ami Rai, you know, these are the kind of guys who like yeah. I was kind of coming kind of forward with at the same time. And it was such a kind of a team effort as well. There was no competition, there was no animosity. It was like you know, we're all movie box artists. We're a team. How did, how did you then? Okay, he, I've always wanted to ask you. How did you kind of book? Like you've already given <coughs> a similar scenario at the beginning and did it follow through. Where? Yeah. How did you book studio time? Did, was it like was there like a hierarchy? Like because I'm guessing if somebody like Jazzy or Shindak, like no one was getting anything. This yeah, is about, so, like <laughs> that's a good question. That is. Um, so movie box had their own. They had one studio at that time, Comedy Studios. Um, Jim Lansbury used to be the engineer there. And um, that was their own studio. And you'd have to obviously wait. You know, you'd have to kind of keep bringing in and seeing when you could get it. And certain artists block booked it because, you know, Shindabadi was kind of probably working on like seven, you know, projects oh, yeah. at the same time. And, you know, um, around the time of doing the dub conspiracy, uh, you know, Jesse was working on reality check and, you know, the other people were kind of just going in and out. So we got to the point where I'd, uh, I was waiting in the queue. But then our gig, um, I, I met Dr. Zeus, you know, and we were kind of instantly kick it off. We became mates. Um, and, and he's like, he asked me like, what I'm doing. I told him sign to move off, just waiting to get into the studio and stuff. He's like, look, let me, let me introduce you to my man here to come to Frantic, innit? And see if you can, if you can, if he, he can like, kind of get you some time. And, you know, I asked Moviebox if it was cool. And they go, look, here's your budget. This is how much money you're getting. Could you tell my July spending McDonald's if you want? Yeah. <laughs> Which I probably did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um, no, no, no. So, so, yeah, so um, booked in with Cam. And, um, and, and, and that's where I recorded the, the whole of the first album, Dub Conspiracy. It was all done at Frantic Studios. And for me, that was a mind-blowing experience as well. 
you know, again, you know, you know, being a being an inlay junkie, I knew who Cam Frantic was. Yeah, yeah. Another kind of Ducky. unsung kind of pantheon of Punjabi UK Pangra, you know what I mean? Just does does it is not like um not flashy or nothing, you know what I mean? And I, I'm like we just done the podcast with Buta not too long ago. Yeah. He, the way you know, the way he was kind of eulogizing about him, it just like, <coughs> it just makes you think in it, you know, who's yeah. the producers, producers. Genius and if my memory serves me correct, Cam used to tell me that he never learned the guitar, but he, you know, he you know, he, he he was a maestro, you know, a, a mad magician on the guitar, you know, and you know, some things come naturally, I guess, and he was a natural born talent. And for me, the memories that are recording of Frantic Studio are more about the fun and the good vibes I had there than what I learned or or like kind of the magic we made. Um so how, would got... you, how would you kind of like bring up the conversation of like what I'm saying is like you've got a lot of the, let's say a lot of the mainstream artists or singers are already on the label with Movie Box. Yeah. So how did you kind of like would they would they would they would they forthcoming to say like I'll give you a vocal or like would you have to saw someone the pressure to get somebody new or get something out of the box and, and so like it, there's no conflict. I think at, at, at the start there was a case of look we've got loads of vocals. Yeah, have a listen. Tell me what you want to pick. Um, and uh, I took loads um, of, of vocals. Um, then the vocals that I picked from an archive for the first album was the one for Love Janjua, um, the, the Romy Gill one, um, and the Richie Money one. And then uh, I kind of met Dalvinder. Uh, I, knew, I knew him already. And then Tariq, I, I met Tariq. Um, at Frantic Studios, you know, he was recording, not Dere Sadke, I think he was Red Alert, he was recording one of his albums there, mm. and um, he came introduced me to him, and when I told him, you know, signed to Box, you know, he, you know, it was, let's do something, you know, uh, and then we did Sony to be three, but yeah, at the start, the, the, the label had vocals, they were like, you know, you can either go out and record, but, you know, we've got loads of vocals here as well, um, and Master Slim, they had a Master, they had a, you know, loads of massive slim vocals as well, and I picked one of those. And did you? So you know, when you look back on there, was there ever a song that you think, "Shit, that one got away," and I got off? I could have taken it. Um, I can't really remember back that far. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's fair. It's fair. You know, that's just me. Yeah. No, no, no. There's probably there's probably others. You know, later on down the line, where I just think, "Shit, that was a lost, uh, that was a missed opportunity." But like back then, you know, every song I picked. Uh, you know, I I really really love doing. I mean, my favorite song on the Dub Conspiracy is the is the ballad I did with Tariq, the sad love song. Yeah, you know, you know, growing up on again sad songs. You know, uh, I've always well, living in West Brom at that time. It was a very sad time and occasion. I'm handsome, so I'm always gonna. To be fair, I ain't got a bad. I've got a good relationship with West Brom. Her job because he had a heart attack there, so we can't really say anything yeah. to him, but. I think West Brom nurture quite a lot because a lot of the like football tournaments were there. A lot of uh, kind of community stuff was happening at that time, and you'd meet kind of the same kind of characters. That, yeah, you know what I mean. So like, did that kind of happen? You're not you, you're close enough to the Pongra and like the hands with, but then you're just out of it as well, and it to kind of and that was that where Dalvinder was living at the time as well. No, so Dalvinder's a hands with lad as well, hands with wood. Oh, okay, yeah, so he's really, I, yeah, we can't credit him or anything. Then. He's one of your boys. So, <laughs> I he, he, hang on, let's clear. 
Hands of Wood is not Hands of... Okay, they are... It's not... Nah, mate. They ain't got the right postcode. No, what's the postcode for Hansworth? B twenty one. Okay, for the wood, twenty one with the wood. With B twenty B twenty B twenty one, but B twenty one is the real like that's the that's the it's like B it's like Smedic's got its hardcore ones like B sixty six. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, cool. I get it. I get it. I get it. So um, I met Dalvin director um, Crystal Records, a company that he. He, you know, he kind of joined um, and he did his first couple of albums there. So I met them because um, I mentioned Michael Sandu earlier from Central Boys. He released an album and that came out on Crystal Records as well. So, you know, being a roadie, I'd kind of go with uh, with, with Michael to to meet Soka, Desi. I think that's what his name was. And that's where I met Darwin and became friends. Um, and and becoming friends with him, we were, you know, we, we became like kind of boys and... Uh, I was introduced to a songwriter uh, called Suki Tandy. Yeah, he is related to one of my relatives, um, Sonny, Sonny Desi. You probably know him, local guy. And, uh, and um, so Sonny introduced me to Suki. And Suki had just recently wrote a song. Um, he wrote Bali Jack Pals Ranja. Um, and I'm like, okay, but you know, and you know, we would go around his house and have sessions and stuff, you know, like as he do back in the day. And, you know, he pulled out his book. He goes, man, I don't then give the care. And he showed me Night to Dip and Jobby. Um, the composition was different when he first showed it to me. Uh, it was more along the lines of Gulapati, you know. And, um, and Dalvin was with me there as well. And I'm like, Dave, what do you reckon? Should I song off body? And we did, we took it off him. Um, so took the song off him and uh, I just went home. You know, not the same night when I was sober. I went back home and, uh, you know, the following morning, you know, tried a few different ideas and stuff. Um, <clears throat> we went to Cam's studio and Dalvin the goes, look, let's just change the dodge a little bit because it's folk, it's monarch style, you know. Um, but maybe it'll work in this way because I had an idea of kind of doing something, you know, on, on the kind of the exhibit beat. Uh, and he changed the composition and, and here we are. You know, and the movement was, was quite a lot of kind of the hip hop beats were kind of, were kind of dominating that time as well, yeah. weren't they? Yeah, I just think with, you know with every uh, you know every every kind of generation within the kind of the history of UK Bhangra, there's always an influence. You know whether it was reggae, you know uh, whether it was kind of speak, you know UK Gary from a bass and a hip hop, and around that time, you know it was you know it was hip hop was working, and you know being a hip hop fan. I've always been a hip hop fan. You know, it was it was only natural that we we, we did it like that. You know, with the doll, the hook line, do don't get the doll. They look your budget. It's pretty simple, kind of a you know a simple output. You know, a doll. You know, alcohol. Um, it was also big... the explosion of videos as well because I remember that video where because it was always like, what was it? Was it Z Music a music box or something? I can't remember. It was, it was before music box. I, music box was the the, the the kind of the pay per view kind of vibe in it where. You'd ring up and you'd, you'd, you'd yeah, because I remember used to go into certain like um music shops and they yeah. used to be behind. I've told us before where they used to just keep ringing and dialing. Then this they want through it using yeah. using pay pay phone cards and it just like, yeah. not registered anywhere, just blasted away. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. You'd um, there'd be Saturdays when all you'd watch on ZTV was Margie at the Alanister that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember, I remember the song Gangster. That was on all the oh, time. Yeah. You know how to book flights and hotels. 
all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Yeah, that's a classic team though. But that that S, I think S S K one. I see S K one with Margie at the style for you. Yeah, he he did he he did a track. I think Jay Shaw's in the video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did Jay Shaw and then Moby when a couple of years in the video. Yeah. He was like, yeah, he had a bad track actually. I saw it, it came up on my TikTok about three days ago. That's why I, I think. Yeah. That's why I, I knew that bit, but that was hilarious. But yeah, those are the days when uh, you know. <laughs> Similar to kind of buying views these days, you know. Yeah. The, you know, that kind of vibe has always happened in some way or another. Back then, people would ring and put their own songs on, and now people kind of buy views. It is what it is. And Tali, at the, at the time, so roughly how old were you at this and uh, at this age? And then, like, were, the, the club scene was exploding as well, weren't it? Like, at yeah, uni, like, I remember seeing you a few times at uni and stuff. And, 22, and, yeah. About 22, 23 around that time when uh, kind of, Things kind of, uh, you know, started working for me. Um, to be honest with you, Night Step and Dubby was an overnight hit. You know, f- for me, uh, I wasn't really expecting it to blow up the way it did. Mm. Uh, to be honest with you, the week it came out, uh, we went to Tenerife. And uh, I remember kind of coming back and, and turning my phone on and I'm like kind of getting gone on, like, where you been? You know, we've got like these interviews lined up for you up in another country. And like me and Davinder and a couple of other guys, you know, we'd been sunning it up in Tenerife. So we come back straight away and, uh, you know, we, we jumped on the on, on the press tour. But yeah, it was uh, it was quite something. I wasn't expecting it to kind of blow up the way it did. And it was actually number one uh, in, in the first ever BBC Asian Network chart as well, which was oh. quite uh, kind of something. It was shocking. Well, considering it's 20 years, like, they yeah. celebrate the anniversary and you got the first number one. And... I was petrified when the album was coming. I was saying to Shabir, Uncle, I'm like, you're releasing me on the same week as Tiger Style Pizza, you know? Um, the RDB are releasing, a, you know, Urban Flavors as well. 
And he's like, Carly goes, don't worry about it. If it's good enough, it will sell, regardless of what else is coming out. Yeah. Um, and that's true. You know, uh, if, that still stands back, today as well, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, back then, you know, you, you'd go into, um, you know, a, a record shop on a Friday. The Friday, Nickel Young and Singer, you know, Friday or Saturday morning, and uh, you just buy three or four. And if there was more tapes out that week than the money in your pocket, you'd just go the next week and get a few more. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, it kind of made sense, but yeah, it was it was pretty scary. So, um, so were you getting the same reaction? Like, this, we could be pretty narrow focused when you're thinking about when we talk about this, just kind of UK. What was it? Were you getting an international response from 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 that release as well? Not really, uh, because uh, I didn't really have a forum to kind of reach out uh, internationally. Um, funny thing is, a few years later, I did go to Canada because uh, I've got family that live in Toronto. And uh, I went into one of these uh, video shops in Toronto and uh, they used to all sell the fake kind of copy CDs in it, like the compilation. Yeah. <laughs> all of them had Max Dip and Dubby on. And I'm, I'm like, to the guy, uh, you know, behind the counter, a young lad. I'm like, buddy, this is my song. What are you doing? And, then, and he's like, who are you? And I, and I got pointed my song out to him. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, you know, we like this song here. You know, there's a very popular song. Did that ball? Did not No, no disrespect to Canadians. Huh? Um, and uh, got talking to the guy. We became good friends. Uh, I still think Dylan from Planet Records. <laughs> uh, that's how we, we, you know, we randomly met because I was trying to have a you are, his, you are his bestseller? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, um, you know, so f- from that perspective, I don't really know if the conspiracy came out in India at that time. You know, yeah. this was it was around the time when kind of multi territorial uh, kind of deals were about to go off. I mean, like Jazzy Shinda, you know, Buddy, and all the all the big artists, they had their kind of multi territorial releases already, but you know, that was only a scope for the big names, I think. The market opened up to everybody around the early 2000s when I started off. So my second album that got a, that got a, a release, a proper release in India. So you know, like you know, when you just look back on it now, uh, um, as you're a lot more matured, do you look that uh, look back on it with fond memories, or do you see it as like just stress, just fun or enjoyment? I have fond memories. You know, I I have I have memories where I just think. Did that really happen? Did I really go through that? You know, um, there was a lot of opportunities missed, Ricky. Uh, some were intentional. Um, you know, maybe I wasn't in the right mindset. Uh, maybe I wasn't paying attention. Some were unfortunate where, you know, people let me down or, you know, relationships weren't as I perceived them to be. But I've got no regrets, you know, no regrets at all. You know, it is what it is. Um, what was know. it? What If you could pin down one opportunity that you thought, wow, oh, man. I'm not saying it's like a like not a regret that you that you thought back around the decision. One opportunity where I really regret missing. Um, that's a good question. Just loads, absolutely loads. I don't know. All I want is one. All I want is one. I think there there was a time when I I could have being more savvy with like kind of the time and the budgets I was given and uh, I could have worked with more artists within the roster of movie box. Um, I just, there was a time when I was just wasn't taking things seriously. You know, my, my, my head wasn't in the right place. 
uh, like we talked about earlier, I think I started believing my own hype a bit too much, mm. um, you know, and uh, maybe kind of going out and kind of just just getting drunk all the time and and then not kind of focusing on on the art because it it is an art, you know. Maybe I could have networked with different people, um, but with what I did, you know, it's, it's all good. And what was the kind of attitude of the of the of the scene at that time was it like i know that it's always been heavily focused with <coughs> politics but it's always had its good moments and bad moments as well what was it like for you i i think around the time that i kind of things got kind of you know set up for me it was a good time in the industry there was a lot of unity and irrespective of how things were probably behind closed doors multi decided we're taking this here and and the gig scene was booming, as you know, around the time that you you, you were at Trent and stuff. Um, you know, you'd go to gigs and, you know, RDB would be there, Zeus would be there, Vix would be there. Like, Tigerstyle. Tigerstyle was like, just lived down, down these sides. They were yeah. and, and, you know, it, it'd be great to meet all these guys, you know, uh, you know, just everyone getting ready for the slots and whatnot. And it was cool. It was nice. You know, there, there, there's no animosity. There was no beef. Everybody obviously was... You know, in, in some way or form, compete with each other, but it was it was a nice community feeling, you know, and everybody appreciated the talent that everybody was bringing out. So, I mean, like you've worked with a, with a, a range of caliber of artists, and I've always kind of stopped myself from like trying to explain someone's di discography to them because one, normally when I kind of look at it, it's always wrong anyway, or with dates and stuff like that. But also, I try and like I learned this from the Buddha one was like let him tell the story of what was coming out there. So. I'll ask you, like, what was the next steps that kind of on your music career? Okay, so after after Dub Conspiracy did well, and it was commercially really good as well for, for the label. Um, you know, uh, I, I went in and my, you know, I had a bigger budget because you know four, I, four albums left, bigger budget. Four albums left. I'm on the second album now. They give me a bigger budget, and they're like, Tali, you know, we're going to give you this much. What do you want? This is, and I, I just threw a number out there and like, yeah, here you go. And I just, just ushered me out the, uh, out the room. And when I first looked at a check, I'm like, really? Did I just, just got this? Yeah. I mean, my first album, um, and we're talking 2001, my budget must have been about two and a half, three grand. Yeah. And that was nothing, you know. But well, what helped me was it because I was given a lot of vocals, you know, or cut up actually give me that in it, but yeah. the, the the budget I got for TD two it was it was extravagant compared to what I had on the first one. Mm. So, and so for me, you know, being the cocky young lad, I was it was like right, what what do I want to do now? And I'm like, fuck it, let's go India. Yeah, so that's what like, do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I didn't go out there. But I mean, I'm like, you know. Let's go India. You know, I, I can record with anybody I want in the UK, but you know, being a fan of folk music and and living legends, you know, that were around at that time, you know, I'm like, I'm gonna go out there, I'm gonna try and learn something, um, and and kind of you know meet people and see what I can cook up. So I took some ideas with me, and uh, at the time, Moovebox, uh, because all of the Moovebox artists were going to India to record or to do some sort of business. They had hired um, like an agent, like a guy who would handle all the business of all the artists. I mean, Sharma, his name was son of Sarjiko. Um, so he was like um, you know, on uh, on the books, the movie box, and 
you know, he would coordinate everything from like kind of hotel accommodation to, to you know, studio arrangements and introducing with singers. So I've landed in India with one of my mates and um, kind of checked into the hotel, you know, Amit's come and he's introduced himself and he's like, so what do you want to do? So I ran a whole list of ideas of him. I said, look, you know, I want to do this, 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 this. Um, and he told me which ones were possible. Uh, so I went to India with um, with, with a tape uh, with some folk songs that I grew up listening to. And on there, I purposely put one song on four times just to emphasize to myself that, T, you've got to do this. You want to you want to cover this, and that was covered up and job there by uh, Sunil Dashinda. Mm. <clears throat> so I said, I mean, I said, I mean, you know, can we go and see Sunil Dashinda? You know, I want to really, really do this again. He said, yes, yeah, should, shouldn't be a problem. So we went down to Ludhiana to his uh, to his office. Um, I met him, and if you ever met Sunil Dashinda, you know he's a character. He's I, you know, I, I I haven't personally met him, but I know people have met him, and and yeah. you automatically know you're in the Who's in yeah. charge of the conversation? <laughs> it's this amazing energy. I, I can't believe how starstruck I was when I first met him. So I met him in the office, and he already knows Ami because everyone knows who Sabji is. You know, Kokewali Sabji, they called, called her at that time. And, um, you know, I told him who I was. And he goes, Tum I said, Hanji. And he's like, Lagda ni Punjabi de to Bosoni Bolda. I went to Milwaki, Hagi, but the old days, like kind of saying this was like the pre cookie days, anyway. Like cookies take the piss out of the UK, yeah. Um, accents in it. He was like saying, like, Yo, you're from the UK, you can speak really good Punjabi. Um, so I told him what I wanted to do, and he goes, Kita Karna Gita. And I told him that I go, Badi Apam, Jitan to see originally Kita Siga, man, was it Jitan, you know, the Lagisaki Karna? I want to do a tribute to what you've already done, you know, but with, you know, you know, with a bit of a new vibe. But I don't want to kind of go draw, but you know, I don't want to go like kind of crazy on it. I want to keep it, you know, essentially folk. Um, he liked the idea, and um, we kind of uh, uh, met the following day in Hushyarpur at a studio. He put that down. But before I kind of uh, left Ludhiana, I mean, it's like uh, Rajit Mani's office is only around the corner. You pop in and see him, see if he's there. I'm like, okay. So I went in to see Rajit Mani, told him I'd already done a song with him on the first. I'd, I'd already had a vocal. The vocal. Yeah. Did he know that? Did he know that? <laughs> no. You know what? <clears throat> I think at that time... It was a different vibe. Of, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people a lot didn't of know. Artists, they would just like kind of, you know, bread and butter and stuff. They just sell a lot of vocals, you know. And, you know, they some of them wouldn't even know where it would end. But yeah, I told him which one, uh, you know, what song I did. And then um, I took... Um, I had some, took some lyrics with me to India. And... Uh, Devraj Uncle had given me a song which I thought, actually, you know, uh, you could do this. Uh, you know, what do you think? So I, I showed it to him. And I took it on the tape that Uncle had kind of sang it for me um, in a composition. And he liked it. And, you know, he actually did that song purely because it was written by Devraj Uncle. Yeah, yeah. uh, rest in peace, Uncle Man. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the next day, Hushyarpur, we went to that random studio. Um you know, Rajit Mani rocked up, Srinder Shinda rocked up, Sarjit Kaur rocked up. Yeah. And, um, you know, they just, a whole day, they just spent in studio just recording the songs. And what was it? Was it, did you, how did you, I'm always kind of interested in around mentality. When you're, yeah. when you're um, surrounded by people who are 
winners and or just lead market leaders in what they're doing. Was there anything that you what you picked up when you saw how they were operating and and how did you manage that dynamic of when you've got somebody like that that in there? Were they were they were they leading you or were you leading them? So, recent, firstly, like when I kind of met all of the singers, you know, whether it was Sabji Kaur or Ranjit Mani, you know, I was a bit kind of quiet and timid, a bit shy, like, you know, it's been a bit of a, you know, fanboy yeah. moment. Yeah. And then very quickly I realized, yo, these guys are human. They're just like me, you know, they're just normal, you know, because you see these guys like on VHS tapes or on, on stage, you know. Um, and it was quite surreal seeing them kind of punch out. The vocals is so quickly and you know so meticulously. I didn't even really need to give them any guidance. To be honest with you, uh, you know, Miri Koyo Kadi, Sigiyono Koyi guidance. These are senior super artists. Mm. You know, Rajiv Mani, you know, legend in his own kind of way. In it, they just came in, they just did their work, uh, and I was happy with how they did it. Um, and, and it was as easy as that, really. Mm-hmm. This is still like the naive novice Tali. Those days, for me, it was a case of. I was more kind of in awe of the fact I'm in another country, I'm recording, I'm pretty much kind of living the life, the dream. You know, how, how, how are you able to kind of balance your work? Like you've always said you always had your work that you're yeah. going to. How are you able to kind of balance that and, and keep yourself grounded at the time? And you leave. There was a time when uh, I, <laughs> I wouldn't kind of go to any family functions because all of my annual leave was either used um, for kind of Friday or Monday kind of bookings. Gigs, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gigs um, or, or, or kind of tours or, or when I went to India uh, for, for recording. Um, and, and that's how I did it. But, you know, for me, it was always a case of I ain't going to give up what I do in the daytime. I did think about it a couple of times. Um, but, the, you know, my God used to always say, Natty, just to stick to what you're doing because I enjoy what I do. You know, um, the, the, the industry I work in, I've been in that industry for over 20 years now. Um, and, and, I, and I enjoy what I do, so I just stuck to it. So then, like, the, the what, what did you feel the reaction to the album was when it when, when it came out for you? So TD2, for me, um, Jawari Wali, again, you know, overnight kind of blew up. Uh, I opened with Gubru Punjab. The, the label wanted me to open with Jawari Wali because it was a commercial song. Yeah. But for me, Kapoor Punjab was the anthem. It was the big kind of, uh, the big vocal, the big dolls, um, you know, uh, uh, the big Punjabi sound. And, and that's what I wanted to do. Uh, but the label were like, no, open me Jawali Wali, that's going to do it for you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Jawali Wali was still a big song. Um, I recorded uh, Mishi Sharapaji on that as well. And that was another kind of cover version we did. We did Kittivich Bachikin and Jain Kourier. Um, uh, at the Shara Classic, you know, um, which uh, we recorded. Uh, who else is on that album? Sabjiko was on it. <coughs> Gosh, I can't even remember. It's been that long now. A few others on, on it as well. But yeah, I mean, for me, you know, uh, that was that was the biggie. Kabrup and Jada was for me. But it wasn't commercially as popular. Plus, it was like a, a, a bit of a crazy tempo around at that time. You know, 100... 170 BPM, like real fast kind of doors. Now to see the guitar bass, I think now to see you know normally dance cars, I think it was a bit of a that yeah, because that's pretty that's pretty fast even like like not like it's up, well it's not it's, the, the the songs now are, are faster, but like for then it was going to be pretty crazy, yeah. wasn't it? So it was like kind of drum and bass kind of tempo, and 
I actually kept one of the verses back from the song and I did like an interlude where one of the verses, I, I did like a drum and bass version. Yes. Um, but yeah, it, it was a bit of a crazy tempo. So it wasn't that kind of, it wasn't that kind of song that would kind of blow up in gigs when I'd kind of go on gigs. So it was never kind of, um, you know, requested at kind of the weddings that I DJed at. Jawari Wali was the one that kind of worked. For you know, the, you, know the, you had Rahat Fatali Khan, like vocal. How did you get that then? Uh, several years later, that was. So um, after I kind of moved on amicably from Movie Box, you know, I did four albums with Movie Box. And... Yeah, you know, what, what I was saying was like, was that, it was that at the time where like it was sourced earlier around there when you were going around the um, office no, no, and Rah stuff like that? The Rahat Fatali Khan project happened like, Probably about a decade after kind of uh, the early stuff I did, yeah. um, and that happened. The only reason why I say that was because when you, sometimes when there'll they, be like a bank of stuff that people have already got, and it and it does take up to that 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 time. Yeah. I'm always interested because when the, the stories of when some of the most successful songs come, it was like it was yeah. an old vocal I had it ages ago. Yeah. You, already, you already said at the beginning you had you know yeah. one vocal which was two years old or yeah. when it was released. So the the Rajasthani Khan um, songs um, were actually part of a huge catalogue that High Tech owns. Okay, and you know they've got the High Tech. You know they, they're known for their Romeos and Ranjas, and yeah, you know, they did they did all those crazy DJ Chino mixes. And but they also released a lot of like kind of local uh, Atola Khan, Rajasthani Khan, lots of kind of local Pakistani yeah. kind of music. And um, Chino, you know, I, I'd not long kind of moved on from uh, from Movie Box, um, and again, you know, made switch with Chino and and his brothers. And he's like, I'm like, cool. I said, you know, I can do something now if you want. And he's like, what you want to do? And he goes, I've got some new stuff that I haven't kind of released yet. He goes, but do you want to have a kind of a bash at like some Rahat songs? Uh, and I'm like, okay. So he just basically gave me his catalogs, like 15 CDs. He goes, take all of these. I've got all these vocals. And tell me what you think. So I um, I just just went home, listened to all those CDs and, and just picked the songs. Um, so the Rahat Fadeli Khan project is, is, is more, of a, more of a remix project rather than like... A, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Did you, know, you ever like, get to meet? Did you ever get? I'm, in fact, I'm moving it forward. I think like, I want to step back for one thing that you said. Did you ever get a chance to meet him? Uh, no, 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 I haven't. Um, I do know that he's heard stuff, uh, and uh, you know, he was pretty fond of a couple of the tracks uh, on the album, but I've never met him in person. Mm -hmm. Your relationship with Movie Box must have been different. I'm just saying, like, you moved away amicably, but like, obviously, they they were one of the first to take a punt at you. How did you, how did it come to the situation where you came to parting ways? So, after TD2. Um, TD2 for me was a success because Jawara Wally was a big song, you know, and it still is. Um, but I think for the label, they didn't feel it was commercially as big as it could have been or as it was with the Dub Conspiracy. So I think the third album, things kind of, uh, you know, the conversation were different and the budgets were different. So, uh, you know, it was a case of, look, we need to kind of, you know, you know, we need to think about what we're going to do next. You know, because obviously, you know, you're obligated to to do three more albums for us. Um, and what year was that? Sorry. 
Um, two thousand and five is when I started. So is that about is about, is that about the time where like things started moving online, like moving away from CDs and torrents and stuff? Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, so because like, labels were struggling then because things were like the pirate scene was getting really absolutely. big. Absolutely. So like pirate CDs and and kind of Napster, line, you know, LimeWire. That was kind of at the time where it, they were like kind of really kicking the industry in the nuts. Every industry, um, and I think the Bangla industry was probably one of the last genres to kind of really embrace digital music yeah. you know i think with mainstream they adapted very quickly because they had the means to they had the infrastructure to kind of sit and bang heads together but it was different for like the smaller kind of world music genres you know they adapted late kind of um but yeah you know it was a, it was, it was a big hit you know uh, physical cds was a big deal and tapes you know it it wasn't only the labels it was the retailers as well you know, yeah, they started to go under. Then you you started to see you see it yeah. going, and then you know those conversations changing budgets were probably they had to do it. Yeah, they had to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but then Project Rehab uh, again. You know that was uh, another project where I thought, okay, I'm gonna go back to India on this. And by this time, I'd switched studios from working with Frantic Camp um, to uh, at that time, Moviebox only had comedy studios to start off with. But then they opened up another studio uh, on Albion Street in Jewelry Quarter, uh, which uh, was uh, run by a couple of engineers. One of them was Suki Chand, um, you know, legendary keyboardist from from Anarchy, uh, and uh, you know, one of the pioneers of the Kiss and Tell movement. Um, so you know, he'd come back from doing a you know really successful stint in India, and he'd come and uh, you know he'd um, they took him on at Albion Street. So. Uh, half of well, most of TD2 was done there. Uh, I think I only did one song, um, Jania, I did at Frantic TD2. So then I think I, that was a time when, uh, even from a, from a creative perspective, I started learning more. Mm. TD, uh, the conspiracy was more about having fun, you know, trying blending beats, you know, with vocals and, and just having a laugh and joke, not taking things seriously at all. But when I kind of got introduced to Suki, you know, um, I kind of call him my first true star because whereas at Cam's, you know, it'd be a case of, Cam, let's try this, this, this. And he'd be like, yeah, you know, he, he'd do most of the work and he'd be like, yeah, this will work, that will work. Whereas the the working structure at Albion Street changed because instead of me asking Suki to try things for me, it was a case of Suki would say like, right, no, try this, try that. Let me show you how to do it. And that's when I really got kind of introduced to a lot of the hardware in the studio, um, you know, using the Akai sampler and kind of getting my hands really familiar with, with like kind of Apple logic. It's maddening uh, the amount of engineers who are responsible for a lot of songs that don't get the... the, the no, 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 absolutely. I think, I think engineers, uh, you know, are, are, are a core element to any kind of, uh, you know, music production. Um, even even down to mastering, you know, I think people underestimate uh, those individuals that do mastering as well. That's a you know like a huge kind of you know feat, you know, like knowing you know how to master specific frequencies and getting it right for the end user to listen to. Yeah. But working out Albion Street was you know was quite an eye opener, you know. And again, it was a move box studio, you know. Pulla kata jina down low, you know. I'd kind of be in the studio till three in the morning and. Kind of call home and 
wake up in the morning at eight o'clock and then go to work. Kind of. Those are kind of really interesting days. I got to, got to learn quite a lot there. And it, you know, I'll, I'll be getting to kind of the health wise in a little bit. Was how what was your health be? Was that being that that doesn't sound too healthy at that time? Would, no, no, it wasn't. But you know, like the lifestyle was different then. You know, the whole kind of rock and roll vibe. You know, going to studio. You know, did we'd be drinking? Well, I will be, and I'd have like a few mates come along, and so you know, we'd be working, but we'd also be kind of having a you know a good time as well. There was a lot of um, entertainment involved as well at the same time, you know. So you know that kind of stuff keeps you kind of going on as well. And you know, with any kind of artistic industry, they all come with their vices. And I guess kind of daru and kind of that, that kind of vibe is is part and parcel. I mean, you've been around yourself; you've seen most mm. of yourself, haven't you? Yeah. Well. So you, know, you 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 know you get by. I mean, I knew for a fact was Jimmy Dodd and with that studio better out there, and that's where you come to you know, I mean, yeah. you know, that kind of mentality we kind of grew up as, as kind of second generation UK Punjabis, you know. So, um, you know, got through it, you know, go, go to work, kind of uh, half liver and, and just, get, <laughs> just get on with I it. I was always waiting for a, an album to be called like that. <laughs> Full liver. Full liver. That's the word. So, you know, like, that project rehab was your real you felt like your first kind of true kind of uh, ustad um mentorship program yeah. out of you know yeah yeah I, 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 yeah i think td2 was when i was right really started to spread my wings it was more about kind of my influences and and what i wanted to share um you know in respects to the kind of sounds i grew up with you know like the folk vibes uh, you know, with Group and Java itself. But Project Rehab was was the real big deal for me uh, because I went to India three times to record for that. Um, and uh, the, the calibre of talent again on, on that album was totally different. You know, Bakshi Billa, uh, Yudh Virmanak. Uh, you know, um, there was um, uh, H.S. Talwar, uh, you know, Saatchi Kowanti again, yeah. you know. Um, got to got to record with Serge finally Serge Anaki finally found a song um, you know that we that we did um, and I think with Project Rehab was when I kind of got back with with Dalvinder as well because Dalvinder didn't feature on TD two after I wanted to ask you that question I was kind of leading up to this kind of section because you two were always together when I remember seeing you guys like joined at the hip you know. And you and you had a lot of success with you know early on and stuff and that. Did you ever? I mean, like, as artists individually and stuff, was it a natural thing to kind of do your things or come back? And what was that? How was the, how was that relationship? So around the time that I did Dub Conspiracy, Dalvinder had also signed to Moviebox and he did his album The Survivor. Now I don't think a lot of people know this, but Dalvinder is a music producer. He started off as a music producer. His first album, the first chapter. It was supposed to be a production album, um, but he ended up doing the vocals himself. Yes. That's how he turned into a singer. So I think with, um, and, and I think this is probably an assumption on my part, I think with the success of Nach the Punjabi, because it was a Tali product, a Tali song, I think we kind of naturally at that time kind of drifted away. He went and did Survivor, and then, you know, um, after Survivor, you know, he kind of got released from Moobox and kind of went and did... Uh, Kind of his own kind of album uh, himself with, with with his band because at that time he kind of 
ventured into a light into his live band vibes mm. um and then i kind of me i kind of just kind of drifted off into my own kind of tv world and and then kind of just you know doing what i was doing whether it was in the live circuit so i was really busy with gigging as well um and we kind of just drifted apart you know there's no animosity but then after i can't remember what happened and where and, and how we kind of reconnected back but after like tv2 um you know we kind of just reconnected I, i can't remember you know what the conduit was and and what kind of brought us back together again but you know we we still spoke to each other regularly on the social vibe and and we just ended up back in the studio i think at that point alvinda had just built uh a new studio at home as all well. you know he's got a now house at, uh, at his dad's place um and then i thought okay so rehab was done half at at the suki studio at alvin street and half it was done um at dalminder's new studio at sweet page and how did you kind of like i'm i'm learning this as well just in case but like in terms of like how recreating the sound because obviously certain studios have a particular kind of sound was there any did you have to take that into consideration to make it kind of sound the same phonically not really now we all know certain studios and certain engineers have a certain sound right mm-hmm. yeah you know like going to that old chestnut of course production or whatever but i could say you know hand on heart that you know like in the five albums i've done and right? they're done across comedy studios planet studios frantic studios uh, albion street and like sweet peace dalvinders i i can honestly say that they all sound like my work and right? mm-hmm. i you know it's not like i've gone in and just sat on the sofa and kissing the comfy tamilana yeah it's all got my sound to it um and i've kind of carried that sound over into all all, all the production i've done since on the other yeah. side of and so i i wouldn't say that, you know there was ever a kind of uh, a problem or a concern that i might lose my sound because it was my sound my ears yeah and yeah I, my pre-production at home did you used to get reproachful like because the ghost production um, and we get to the message board now then yeah. the go the ghost production of that scene like you were also around at the height of that as well weren't you um were you getting approached with it was it easy to for it to be done um i don't think i was good enough uh, or popular enough to be approached <laughs> for ghost production you know i was you know i mean you know uh i did some yeah i did some but it wasn't as much as some people um and it, even those tracks that i did do for me it wasn't a case of i've got to put my specific stamp on it so people know it's me and so like cuz you know ricky when back in the day when something was gospel produced you could tell who had done it and but that out of us the enthusiasts we would know and that was studio that i got up of god and um but yeah i mean i did I, i dabbled in it but it wasn't something that i kind of you know overly reached out because again you know it wasn't music was never bread and butter for me it was just uh, a, a little side thing in it we touched on the digital bit you know earlier with the music side but also from in terms of literature and the scene going onto a digital kind of platform open up on the internet people allowed to kind of like have anonymity writing comments and doing all this sort of stuff at that time the first kind of dissy twitter in some ways was the punjab 2000 kind of message boards and stuff like yeah. what was what was your interpretation of what it was like on there did you see it's toxic healthy whatever i just think any kind of forum where people are given you know an uh, you know an anonymity is you know can be kind of catastrophic or dangerous for the end user you just got to take your the chin you know you know you 
criticism is very important. You know, sometimes people say some horrible shit. You know, it does hurt. You know, being a big lad, you know, being called a fat bastard all the time on P2K. You get used to it after like the third or fourth message. You tell Tico or whatever. You know, I think it's the most important thing. But, you know, Tony Pablo was a really good friend of mine. You know, made his soul rest in peace. He put a lot of effort into P2K and he really believed in that vision of kind of freedom of speech and, um, uh, you know, and giving people an opportunity worldwide to speak to each other about music. There were some real healthy conversations, if I remember, you know, on uh, P2K and on the Snoop one. There used to be one on Snoop, wasn't there? Snoop yeah, because one of our mutual friends, isn't, I think it's a bit unfair to mention it, he used to kind of write a lot of some stuff there, um, you know, like album reviews and stuff like that. And I remember he did, like, you know, a couple, and I'd disagree with him. But I just didn't have the time to kind of write these. I mean, I didn't even go on really, but like you, it was it was really interesting to see different uh, different kind of opinions, especially people uh, who didn't necessarily grow in that area, like living in those areas, coming in and their musical influences. I think from that side, yes, it's healthy, but I think you did start to see a lot more the kind of behind the scenes started spilling over. Then I think I think it started off with a forum for people to discuss music and whatever, to become in, uh, an anonymous kind of opportunity for people to vent. Because all of a sudden in the 2000s, the industry, the UK industry did explode with people like me, you know, talentless, you know, don't yeah. know how to play sport, never learned, and I, you know what I mean? Um, that kind of stuff. So there was, I think, you know, some people were kind of a bit bitter. I, I did kind of sometimes feel those vibes when I'd meet certain people. Um, you know, uh, that, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing or, you know, so and so flat, not them, but does his work for him, this and that. That was kind of common, Anna. And a lot of the old schoolers kind of felt like that, Anna. Yeah, because they've been doing 20 years of yeah. learning an instrument and blah, blah, blah. And then now you've got the emergence of bedroom producers just needing a sample here, bang, bang, and earning more money than they ever did. Yeah, I think some of the criticism was unfair because... Yes, it's easier to make music by sampling and kind of, you know, reusing sounds and, and kind of copying or getting inspiration. But at the same time, you know, you take time and effort, you know, to do that. I mean, if you look back in hindsight, you know, Dr. Dre as an example, you know, everything that he did, you know, he was inspired by a lot of music he grew up listening to and he sampled that music. And a lot of his kind of keyboard work was done by Scott Storch or Melman. But I think there was a group of senior kind of artists who felt that if you can't play a keyboard, not like instrument, any instrument, if, you, if you're not a keyboardist or a pianist, you can't be a music producer. I have those kind of conversations with people. Uh, and how did you, do, when, when somebody came up with you that particular argument, how did you, what was your kind of, how would defend yourself, I would say? Um... I just wouldn't. I'd be like, Tiga, buddy, you know, because you've seen it now. What are you going to say to that? <laughs> I looked up to all these people. Yeah. And to be honest with you, uh, I've only ever had one experience where I was really disappointed with one person who I thought was an idol. Wow. We, just yeah. one. And I'm lucky. Yeah. Everybody else who I've met, and I thought, yo, that was just brilliant meeting, you know. I remember the first time I met Jack. I remember the first time I met Sushinda Shinda. First time I met Sofribadi. First, first time. There was this one artist who, when I met him, 
it brought my heart with, with the conversation and, and how he treated me and another person. But it's cool because, you know, I, I, I get it. You know, uh, afterwards I found out, you know, conversations and why he's like this purely because, like, we're new cats and, you know, we're not part of the life scene. You know, we, we don't have any stars and it's like, you know, they don't deserve it. You know, this is in your space. Um, but yeah, you know, that was that. Oh man, I, I, I could kind of hook into that bit, but it's just going to kind of <laughs> go from a. I want to kind of move on a little bit as well, Tyler, because of, like, you know, from, you, I mean, you, you've gone through like many different lifetimes and I've, I've known you in different kind of lifetimes and different kind of head spaces as well, you know, you know, where you've gone away from music and you didn't want anything to do with it. And then you, you've kind of, you've come back onto it. You find the dharmic route in that as well. And, you know, you continue to go on there. But I also want to kind of highlight your, your health story, which is one of the reasons why we had this conversation to start off with and, and from the timing-wise. Yeah. I want you to kind of relay and kind of bring it up to today in terms of just from the house the health aspect, and then we'll touch back onto the music. Okay, so um, as it currently stands, um, I not long ago was given the all clear for, uh, for cancer. Um, so um, at the start of the year, I was diagnosed with a very rare type of bone and tissue cancer called liposarcoma. Um, so I had a very large tumour uh, sitting behind one of my kidneys, uh, which, because of the lack of research behind sarcoma, the, the doctors couldn't really understand how long you've been there, how quick is it going to grow, is it going to burst inside me? Um, but uh, I went through some kind of, uh, they call it cat four surgery, which is the highest level of intrusive surgery you can have in March. Um, for the removal of the tumour. Um, and uh, here we are. I'm breathing still. But Tali, it wasn't just any kind of tumour. Like, how big was this tumour? Because I remember when we had this conversation, I was randomly... I, I think I was just... I sent you a, a podcast or something like that, and you, and you contacted me and said, oh, oh, I'm in. This is what's happened. And I rang you straight away, and I said... I was like... Yo, what's going on? And then you just told me, and I could not believe. Even to this day, when I was, I was telling my wife, I was like, "This is, this was mad. This was madness." I think the the, the tumor was just a little over thirteen kilos. Thirteen kilos, yeah. Yeah, one three, yeah. Like thirteen bags of sugar. Yeah. And it was it was being missed as well, wasn't it? That people, they were, like you. It were, was. So just, just just rewinding a little bit back on how the diagnosis happened. I caught COVID last October um, in 2021. And uh, after going through the motions of COVID, you know, um, I returned to work very quickly. My, my employer was very keen to get me back into work. And um, going back into work, uh, I, I realized that my asthma was just still fucked. You know, I just couldn't breathe properly. So I was popping on my inhaler at 10, you know, I was taking 10 puffs at a time. And uh, I remember it was a, it was a Monday morning uh, after a weekend of kind of resting. I just would ring the doctor, and you know, as it is, you know, locally in Sandwell, you you can't just can't can't just up and go into a uh, <laughs> yeah. Your leg your leg has to be hanging off to get actually an appointment. You have to get after the telephone conversation consultation. So I had a telephone consultation, and the doctor called me, and uh, he's like, "What's going on, man?" I said, "I got taking ten puffs," you know kind of post-COVID, I, you know, I, you know, do, can you kind of give me some nebulizer or something? Because I've had, like, chest infections before. 
It's like if you're taking your inhaler four times, sorry, ten times, you know, in one go, you know, for, you know, for a bit of kind of, uh, you know, um, relief, you need to go to the hospital because you might have a problem with your lungs. It could be a, you know, a clot on your lungs. So I work in Telford, so I'm I'll cross up a good back here. I'll get back to Sandwell, um, and uh, told my wife to drop me off. She dropped me off to the hospital, and uh, just sitting in there for a couple of days. You know, it's crazy. COVID was at the at its peak as well. Then, they you know they did a CT scan on my lungs. They're like, Mister Garcia, your lungs are clear. There's no, um, you know, there's no clot clot on your lungs. We'll still give you some blood thinners, but there's actually a, a bit of a dark cloud under your lungs, which we don't know what it is, and it's quite big. I'm like, okay. So they kept me in 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 uh, Sandor for about a week. Every day, I'd have like various doctors coming to me with the loads of students, you know, plodding and poking me. Yeah, ah, Dick, look at this guy. Yeah, look, look at this guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so they discharged me at that point because they felt convinced that it's big. They don't know what it is. It could be a sarcoma. It could be malign. You know, could be you know, could be benign. Could be malignant. Uh, but they felt satisfied. It's not going to kind of explode inside me. So I got um, referred to Dudley Road, down the road. Went in there a couple of times. The guy's like, don't know what it is. Had another CAT, CAT scan, don't know what it is. Then I got referred to a third hospital, um, QE, which is like a specialist renal hospital. Well, Tiferone, uh, they did a biopsy. Um, and uh, from the biopsy, this is from October to February. You know, I've got loads of appointments. And I think towards the end of February, I got diagnosed um, with liposarcoma. Um, and they said that, look, because it's so big, we're going to, we need to operate quite quickly. So you get an appointment within eight weeks. I'm like, okay, need to operate quite quickly, eight weeks. <laughs> um, but within a fortnight, though, I got a call saying, uh, we've had a cancellation, uh, you know, book you in in a couple of days. Um, so I thought, okay, went in. Um, and uh, woke up six, uh, six hours it took the surgery did uh, because the, the kidney the, the tumor had engulfed my one of my kidneys so what they wanted to do was due to my age young lad and all they oh, wanted yeah. to they wanted to save both kidneys um, and they go look if we need to get rid of one we will do it, but we want to actually try and save it preserve it that it can't mourn you um, so when I know, uh, took him six hours to take this tumor out and the surgeon was telling me afterwards he goes that when we took it out, it was like this, and it expanded like this. It was opened up like a like a basketball size because it was kind of compressed behind my ribs and stuff. Um, so I was in intensive care for a couple of weeks uh, until I was moved into a ward, and I think that's did, when like did, did, yeah, yeah, that's where we from. Our, that's what we spoke, yeah, yeah, because you needed to, things to put you to sleep, and you were listening to the podcast. Didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> did it? Did the um, did you get a chance to see it? No, I didn't get a chance to see it uh, because just before the, I got admitted the night before the surgery and, I, and the night before, because QE is a research hospital, um, I had various people come in and get me to sign papers, you know, because sarcomas got such a lack of research. They wanted to kind of, uh, need your permission to take it away and like do research on it. I'm like, just take it away. You've taken it out. I ain't going to need it afterwards. Yeah. Not like I'm going to make it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I didn't get a chance to see it, but um, they were pretty mortified. In fact, the doctor, uh, the surgeon was telling me it took six hours because they had to take several breaks because it was so intrusive and it was so, um, 
they, they, they got there was a lot of fatigue involved, you know, you know, carefully removing it, you know. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of really blessed to be here. And what I, I know, I mean, it's like God's grace that you, you, you're here, and uh, I know you it's been in the paper. And one of the key things that you want to kind of push forward, and one of the reasons for this was around the kind of awareness around it. And to put to push it. So, in terms of kind of signposting and support and aftercare, what was that like for you then? And like, if there's somebody, I mean, like the potential that they have it from there. What what's your kind of advice? So, I think when it comes to Indians, Punjabi, you know, if something goes wrong, they say good for everything. Um, one of those ones. <laughs> I, I, I think it's, it's, it's important that, you know, with all the kind of shit that's going on around the world at the moment with various ailments and Bumaria, you know, if you don't feel right, just seek help. You know, NHS, the app, you know, or pick up the phone. I was really fortunate uh, that I was supported by one of my cousins who's a couple, two of my cousins who were both GPs, brother and sister. So um, I was very fortunate to have kind of, you know, within the family, some support of professionals who were kind of guiding me and kind of giving my family as well, you know, some uh, some support uh, because somebody else in my family is also, well, at the time was also going through uh, kind of their own kind of uh, cancer journey as well. So it was a tough time for the whole family at the time. Mm. Uh, my advice would be is, you know, if it doesn't feel right, you know, if, if, if you feel off, get it checked, you know, get it checked. Even if you've got a you know, sit in a queue for a while. I mean, sometimes when I ring the, the GP, it's like, you are 89 in the queue. Just just do it, man. Just, just, just wait in the queue. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I know. It, it, it's hard, man. It's, it's like, the, the easy option is, I think it's I think it's gone harder since COVID. I think COVID sorted it, you know, when the, that, the whole system of when you're booking to see your doctor, it was much easier. Yeah. They had free time. And then all of a sudden, since it's kind of creeping back, it gets it's getting harder and harder, but I think you always got your gut feeling. You know, if something doesn't feel right, that you that that's that's the one. Yeah. To to be honest with you, with with my uh, with my diagnosis, I couldn't feel it, which is still to to this day shocks me. I mean, being a big lad, you've known me a long time, innit? Yeah, 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 yeah. Ali's yeah. always been a big lad. You, you uh, listen, look, you you used to be used to do modelling. It's fine. Who yeah. that? We we've all been there. <laughs> And then you let yourself go now, now and again. Yeah. yeah. So for me, it was a case of it was just me, you know, it, you know, tried losing weight and whatnot, and I'd never be able to shift as as much. But now I know what it was because there was something sitting inside me, uh, you know, which was you know, um, you know, which wasn't supposed to be there. And, yeah. I, and I think for people listening or watching, you imagine something thirteen kilos just on on your back all the time or moving around and. That's going to affect your day to day, anyway. Yeah, it, it, it does. And um, to be honest with you, the doctor had told me that I'd have to, I'd likely be on my back for a good four to six months. Hmm. Um, but I was back at work on phase return within four. You know, hmm. it's just there's only so much TV you can watch, and yeah. you know, uh, all that morphine didn't do my kind of my mental health any any, any good either. Yeah. You know, at one point in ICU, I was having conversations with myself. Uh, you know, with the then why didn't you record this track? <laughs> <laughs> now, now, honestly, um, 
at the start because I was in so much pain. They kind of give me a little button thing. Yeah, so, and what you clapping it all the way. Yeah, and it's and like meg gariga gariga gariga. At one point where I was having full blown conversations with myself in my head, like not even out. Yeah. And meg goodness, looking, I was going to take this thing out of my arm, man. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Very de- prescription medication is 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 such a it's such a wave of uh, addiction out there that it doesn't get the uh, attention that it, it needs and the amount of people addicted to painkillers in America that you see and even in the UK um, but I think you'll start hearing it more and more I was reading it as well about you know prescription addiction is um is one to watch out for yeah so so they're totally so like you know You've had a bit of chance to be reflective. You, you've been, you've had a, a near-death experience, and well, more than that. How, what's the outlook been? Like, what's your kind of? How do you look back on things, and how do you look forward on things now? So, I had a lot of time on my own to reflect because I couldn't even have any visitors at that time. Um, so, spent a lot of time on my own in my thoughts. And it kind of made me think, I mean, I'll be honest with you, the, the night before the surgery, I was absolutely petrified. Yeah. I'm like, I've got some phone calls to make. I've got some apologies to make. You know, you know, what do I do? You know, what's going to happen to my kids? You know, you know, if I don't pull through. So, you know, it was an eye opener and it gave me a different perspective towards life as a whole. You know, I, you know, being in six spaces over the last kind of, you know, eight to nine years, and kind of trying to contribute in various ways within the community and getting involved with different kind of projects and stuff and different type of people. It's made me think that, you know what, I need to kind of step back and and kind of recalibrate my journey with, you know, with Big Man. And, and you know, essentially, we kind of get stuck in this page, which is this kind of uh, herd mentality where, Everyone else is doing it, you know. You got to do it as well. You got to judge people. No, you got to do it this way. You got to do it that way. For me, I now believe that my spiritual journey is a personal one, you know. And I don't have, you know, I've got to be grateful for the second chance. Of, you know, I did a good deed somewhere, and it's paid off. You know, big man thought I, I deserved another chance in life. So for me now, my my outlook is 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 to kind of just continue focusing on my health and and making sure I'm around for my kids. And my family, and for those, you know that I look, you know the, that I have a lot of love for. So there was a lot of people who, we well, there was a few a handful of people who really supported me through the journey I was going through. I didn't really tell many people because I didn't really want it to be a sympathy thing. Um, another thing was was that my my sister was going through something similar as well at the same time, and for me it was like from a personal perspective, I want the whole family to ask blessings. To, to stay with her, my, you know, my baby sister. Anna. I didn't want kind of anybody to take that focus away. So I kind of, my wife knew about it at home. I didn't even tell my parents. My kids didn't know. Um, but a couple of my friends knew, you know, um, you know, I could give a shout out to, you know, people like Dips Bamra, GV, you know, you know, really, really kind of held my hand through this uh, emotionally and, uh, and mentally as well. Um, and I got through it. And for me, the you know the the new the new tally is all about kind of being happy, making people happy, not mm-hmm. going to about what other people are doing, and trying to lead by example, you know, and, and and trying to get through each day as I can because 
ก็ต้องคุยไปนะเบรกยังยังไม่รู้ว่าจะเกิดขึ้นพรุ่งนี้ก็ต้องคุยไปนะเบรกยังยังไม่รู้ว่าจะเกิดขึ้นพรุ่
it didn't really hurt that much. But at times I kind of think back and think, it's really stressful. Do I really need that stress on my head right now? Yeah, you know, do I really want to kind of go through all that nonsense of kind of the politics. people, politics, yeah. Um, and obviously the the income is different as well now, you know, uh, significantly, you know, um, since, uh, uh, you know, since when we started, the hustle is different. I think so, it's got more, I think, it, I was thinking of it, I was at the Orgula concert um, in Birmingham yesterday. Yeah, and I was like the way that I was the way I was thinking is that it's just such a street, uh, such an extreme, and, and um, where you got people who are trying, spending their own money, like their their own money, and trying and trying and trying to get to there, and then yeah. you just see the extreme of wealth that can happen with like what odds are selling out Birmingham, and just seeing the amount of people there and like the production levels. Then you see what Daljeet's doing. With fucking moons and arenas, and then you've got like AP, the numbers, Siddu, like those kind of astronomical kind of numbers and the income coming. I've, ne- I think, I don't know whether it's the right phrase, uh, phrase in, in terms of it, but it feels the right phrase for me. It's like the poorer of the, the poorer got poorer, and the richer got richer, and 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 I, and, the, and you've got the the ones in the middle for me is the kind of nostalgic market. That yeah. they kind of like, it's it's all right. They they can they they still they can still do still what they got to do, but I think if you're a newer artist now, it's easier to release music, um, but the disposable kind of product that just gets thrown about is a lot lot quicker. Shelf life is really 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 short now. I mean, back in the day, you know, the you know an artist would release an album and that would be you know that keep them going for a couple of years. Mm. You know, uh, now like you, you have. You know, some of the artists that you mentioned, you know, they'll release a huge track and then in about three weeks' time, they'll release another huge track, you know, yeah. because, you know, so the shelf life is short. And the, I think um, the, the, the memory span of, of the end users is short as well now because um, there's so much coming out and music is a lot more accessible now. That's it. You know? That's the word, access, isn't it? Yeah, it's access. And then back in the day, it was either a case of the only way you'd find out something new was coming out was either if you open up your mum and dad's this for this and look at the the adverts on the inside, yeah. or you physically go into a shop um, and 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 you'd ask the guy, you know, what's come out or what's going to come out. But now it's a case of you turn your phone on, you know, uh, it's everywhere. You know what's coming out. You know, you know, you know when people are releasing, um, or don't even know that they release something. Like they just... released, yeah. Um, Two you know, songs on the same day. All yeah. day you know I mean? But, you know, supply and demand, you know, it's, it's brilliant. I just think in, in one aspect, uh, from an art perspective, you know, it's flourishing. You know, supply and demand people are getting what they want to hear. Uh, is the artist making enough money from it? That's a different discussion altogether. But I guess now you have to put a lot more time and money into it, and a lot more investment, um, you know, to get a return. And to those of the guys, in some of the guys you mentioned, they're doing a cracking job and, you know, they deserve it because they've, they've put that hustle in, they've put that money in and, and you know, and they're getting their dividends back. Uh, but for someone starting off, you know, I can imagine it can be really, really tough. Yeah, definitely. So, like, um, what, what what is your current opinion of, of the current market? I know you've just discussed the more the, the income and the, the monetary value of it, but, like, in terms of philosophy-wise, uh, the temperature, what do you feel? Maybe like compare it to Ron when we discussed it before twenty years ago to it is now. Do you think it's moved on? 
I'd say that the industry has definitely changed, but you're probably asking the wrong person because I, I don't live and breathe it anymore and I don't listen to it all. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, I'll only know of certain songs that I write is if, if they pop up on my Insta feed or, or if a friend of mine who's still in the business releases or if one of the kids in my family are talking about it. Yeah. You know, um, but it, it, there is a lot of saturation. You know, uh, there is a bit of a hierarchy, like there is in every kind of generation of, of every, you know, of the Pangara music. Um, you know, you, so you, I'm, I'm not really feeling it. Mm. That, but that, that, that isn't essentially a, a, a negative thing. It's just, it's just not my vibe. Uh, you know, I, I like some of the stuff that some guys in India are doing. Uh, producer called Sink, I love his stuff. You know, um, Proof, I love the the, the lenders. You know, um, you know, uh, a couple of other guys. If I ever come across their song on Spotify in my daily mix, you know, I listen to it. I think okay, but generally over the last few years, I, I haven't really kind of, um, I haven't adapted to the kind of Dordo Marordo gangster vibe of music. I know it's very popular and yeah. fair play. You know, if it works and we can supply and demand and all, but it, it, you know. It's not for me. Okay, um, Tali, I'm going to bring it to a close. But before every, <clears throat> before kind of every episode that I do, I am um, I ask the I give an opportunity to the to the guest to kind of is there a bandwagon that they kind of want to jump on? Is there a bandwagon that they would jump off, or is there anything that they want to kind of get off their chest? This is their opportunity to do it. Um. <laughs> There's nothing I want to get off my chest. You know, I'm just grateful that I have this conversation with you, Ricky. Yeah. You know, just just seeing you on the camp, you know, you know, seeing you on the video just bring back memories. Yeah, it's good. A lot, of, a lot of memories that we can't really talk about on air. <laughs> we <laughs> will do eventually. It's just but, uh, making but, it safe space yet. But this podcast you're doing is such a great kind of service to the community, and I guess it can't be easy with all the kind of post-production work you got to do and stuff. So, you know, keep at it, you know. Uh, from an older brother perspective, really proud of you. You, yeah, you, right. you, do, you do a lot of kind of uh, community work yourself. So, all I can say to those who are watching or listening is just be happy. Life is too short. You know, don't take things too seriously. Um, uh, and just keep smiling. You know, there's, there's always kind of, you know, um, some good news around the corner. But you know you've got to try and kind of be positive, and uh, you know, to, to, you know, just, just keep fighting on. Charlie, on those wise words, I'll bring you close, and I'd like to thank you for taking time out and raising such important stuff and a trip down the memory lane. So I'll see you soon, and then whenever it comes out, this this is the first place you're gonna drop it, bro. Hold it, bro. Respect. Respect. Cheers. Thanks. Peace.